So this morning we're going to be in John chapter 10, and it's kind of the, the sandwich part of what we talked about last week. So last week um, we began this section of Jesus talking about how he is the good shepherd. And, um, but in the midst of that, in the middle of this section on him being the good shepherd, he, he introduces a different metaphor where he says he is the gate or he is the door of the sheep. And so last week we, we talked about Jesus as, as the door and that through him as the door, we find everything that we could want. We find salvation and we find pasture. And he's setting up this kind of contrast between the shepherd and how the shepherd enters and how the thief enters. That the shepherd comes through the gate. That the shepherd, because the shepherd knows the sheep and is the righteous person, the one that should be going to the sheep, he comes through the front door. But the thief comes through the outside. The thief comes through other means. And he said if, if they come in anywhere besides through the gate, then their intent is to kill and destroy he said, the shepherd comes through the gate. And so we talked about last week that the thief is happy to enter through all kinds of other ways. To try to offer salvation and pasture through all kinds of other means. Deliverance through politics or through money. And sometimes even religion. Maybe especially through religion. The thief doesn't care his desire is to get access to steal and kill and destroy. But through Jesus, we have salvation and pasture. But the question then that this is all being kind of encapsulated in is this claim of, but is he good? You can say, you can make these claims that through me you find salvation and pasture, but the question of, well, how, do I, how can I trust him? How can I know that that what he's offering me is true? How do I know that it's good? Because those other things that the thief, that you say the thief is offering, they seem good. They seem like they might find, that I might be able to find deliverance, that I might be able to find meaning, I might be able to find contentment, I might be able to find joy or pleasure or fulfillment in those other things. So how do I know that what Jesus says is true and is good? I mean, this is the question that's been asked since the beginning of time. If you go back to the Garden of Eden, the question then is the same question as it was in Jesus' day, and it's the same question that we face today. Which is, are you going to believe the shepherd, or are you going to believe the thief? And in this section, Jesus is laying out the evidence and why you should believe in him and why you should listen to his voice and why you should trust him. And it's amazing that his big evidence is because I'm good. I am the good shepherd. So let's see what he means by good. Lord, help us this morning Help us to hear your voice. Help us to believe you and trust you and follow you. Lord, help us to see how good you are and what good news that is for us. Amen. So there are actually five quick points, and I do mean 
quicker points than normal, but five that I want to point out from this passage that Jesus puts forward in saying like his goodness. And my hope is not to exhaustively deal with any one of these. I can't possibly do that because they're actually, much like we talked about with the Sermon on the Mount, they're not that difficult to, um, fi- they're, they're not that difficult to understand mentally, but they're hard to just wrestle with and grasp and believe in our hearts. And so these are the kinds of truths that Jesus lays out that are supposed to give us comfort that we're supposed to remind ourselves of. So, so there are five of them. The first one, the first evidence of his goodness is that he knows you. Verse one, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. So remember last week we talked about how this would have been a normal illustration. People would have understood what Jesus was talking about. Like, hey, as we all know, you know, the shepherd goes and gets his sheep and they're, they're in the pen and then they, he go, comes the next morning and he calls them out. The shepherd goes through. The gatekeeper says, ah, yes, you're a shepherd. You can come in and get your sheep. They would all understand that. But there is one strange detail that they would have been like, wait, what? And it's found there in verse 3, which is, To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name. That is not something that people would have expected. The shepherd did not come into the gate normally and be like, all right, Steve, Sue, Jenny, Fred, let's go. Like, come on, come on out. Like, they didn't name them each. Like, this is not, like, back in that day, they would have just known who, what sheep were theirs. They would have their call, like we talked about last week. They would have, like, a whistle or a call. The sheep would respond to that. But he didn't know them by name. And Jesus is saying, no, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name. So the fact that he is putting that detail in there that is different than what they would have normally expected tells us something. And he's wanting to say something extra about the fact of how well the shepherd knows his sheep. Like he knows you. And the contrast there is that the thief doesn't know you. But the shepherd does. And I think that we, we miss this very simple idea when we are trying to figure out, like, well, can I trust him? Is he good? Do I, can I follow him? And part of it is the distance that sometimes we feel because we assume that because we don't feel like we know God very well, like maybe you're here and you're brand new to all of this and you're like, I I don't know anything about the Bible. I don't know anything about Jesus. I don't know anything uh, about God really except for some things maybe I learned growing up, but really I don't know anything. Don't make the mistake of thinking that because you don't know God very well that he doesn't know you because he does know you. And he has called you by name, and he has called you here by name this morning. And not only does he know your name, but he knows everything about you. He knows every desire. He knows every fear. He knows every part of your mind and your heart and your soul. He knows what makes you tick, what motivates you, what keeps you up at night, what makes you anxious. He knows exactly why you said the thing that you said or did that thing that you did. He knows you. 
He knows you better than you know yourself. Look, we all have things in our past. We all have things in our hearts and in our minds where we think, oh, if other people knew this about me, they wouldn't really, they wouldn't say these things about me or they wouldn't want to be near me. And the reality is, Jesus already knows it. Sorry. Jesus already knows it. And that is both, if you think about it, and you really accept that and confront that idea right now, that is both incredibly terrifying and then potentially incredibly relieving. He knows. He already knows. Maybe you're here and, and you are newer here and you're just thinking, ah, oh, will, will people here accept me if they know this about me? Or, they, or maybe there's something that you know, it's always been this difficult thing that you have to share eventually and it's always this worry of how will people feel about you in that moment? Understand, Jesus already knows it. And he calls you by name. And he leads you out. He knows even more than you know about yourself. He knows, and the reason I know that is because often people go through life wondering, like, why am I here? Like, what's my purpose? What am I, what am I created to do? What am I meant to do? And Jesus already knows that because he created you. He's the one leading you, right? So that's why I can say with confidence that he knows you better than you know yourself because we don't know always where we're going or why we do the things we do or why we keep falling into certain traps or what we're supposed to, what we're meant for, but he knows. This is especially critical today when our culture just keeps pushing this idea that like there's nothing solid about who you are or who you were created to be. And God says, I already know. I made you. It's especially critical in a culture where everybody thinks that they know you. I've said before many times that I, I grew up in, in cities and larger population areas. I've only ever lived in larger population areas. And so moving into a smaller community was a little bit of a, a cultural shock. And one of the things that I learned pretty quickly was that in, in smaller communities, everybody, every like this, this common feeling that I just kept hearing from people in this experience is everyone knows about you, but not very many people actually know you, right? Like there's these images and these labels and these reputations that follow. Sometimes if you've been here for generations, they can follow through generations. Everybody has an opinion because we think we know one another, but they don't really maybe know you. And maybe others know you as something that you don't know yourself as or you think is unfair, reputation that's from the past. Or maybe pressure to be somebody that you aren't. Or maybe you've compared yourself to others that you grew up with or that you're in the same family with. Jesus doesn't compare you to them. Jesus doesn't know you by those false reputations. Jesus doesn't identify you by your past. He knows who he created and who he created you to be. 
and he knows where he's leading you. And he calls you by name. The thief knows none of those things. And his desire is to destroy. So who are you going to listen to? He knows your name. He's numbered every hair on your head. And he calls you by name and leads you out. That is the good shepherd. And then second is that sheep know him. So he knows us, but we also know him, and that's a gift from him. Look at verse 4. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Now this, this idea is a very scary thing for a lot of people. Like, well, how do I know that it's God's voice? How do I know that I'm hearing it? How do I know that, that he does know me? And the big encouragement I want to give to you is it is a gift from him that we know his voice. He's not saying, hey, maybe my sheep will listen. If they try hard enough, they'll hear my voice. Or if they learn enough things, then they'll know my voice. He says, no, you will know my voice. It's a promise that he is delivering to us. And so one of the things that we need to do to act in response to that promise and that gift is start listening to him. And we love to fall into ditches when it comes to listening to God. One, one ditch is that in, in the name of listening to God, we call every intuition we have, every desire that we have, every, every gut feeling that we, that we get, we call that the voice of God. I think God told me this. God me, told me to do this thing. God told me that this is, this is like what I'm supposed to do or how I'm supposed to think about this. And that is a dangerous ditch to fall into where we just label everything that pops into my head, anything that I like, because really what, that, what ends up happening is everything that I like that pops into my head and everything that I want, I say that it's from God and then that gives me license and liberty to pursue it however I want to. That's dangerous. But the other ditch isn't safer, which the other ditch is that listening to his voice, like, right, that's why we don't listen to God's voice. We don't listen to him. Like, it's just too unreliable. So we just put all of our hope and our rest on our knowledge. So I will submit myself to my understanding of the Bible and not talk of such nonsense as just listening to God and hearing from him. As if our reason and our intellect is less fallen than our emotions and our intuition. It's all infected by sin. It's all broken. See, just like driving, ditches are bad. If I did driver's ed, that would be lesson one. Ditches are bad. Stay on the road. Right? No one has ever driven into one ditch and said, well, I'm really thankful I didn't drive into that other ditch. It's a ditch. So the reality is, Jesus says, I will call my sheep by name and I will lead you out and my sheep will know my voice. So listen to him. Practice it. How? Really simple and not being able to go into too much detail, it's actually pretty basic how we learn to hear his voice. We learn to hear his voice, one, by being in his word. That's 
the reason to read the Bible is not to just gain more knowledge. Primarily, the reason that God reveals himself through his word is that we would know him, that we would hear his voice, that we would learn how he speaks. How does a child learn to speak? A child learns to speak by hearing their parents and hearing people around them talk, and they repeat phrases back. So be in the word, be immersed. And when you're immersed in his word, you learn this is what he sounds like. So then when you hear some of those voices and you feel some of these impressions, you could say, ah, that sounds like him. Yeah, like that sounds like this. That, that makes sense. It, it, you're immersed in that. You know him. And then we speak back to him with prayer. I always encourage people when you're learning how to pray, start with praying his words, just like that kid, just like the child starts with repeating phrases back. Like, I love it when a, when a small child repeats some phrase that they've heard from their parents that they have no idea what it means. Isn't that fun? Especially if it reveals something juicy about what's going on, right? Like, <laughs> like when a kid utters a word that he's not supposed to utter, you know, I don't know where he heard that. Well, I do. I know, like that's... <laughs> He's two, so yeah, we know, we know. And we're judging you. Just kidding, I'm just kidding. Oh, I got a groan for that? All the things that I say up here, and that's what gets the groan. All right, got it. Listen, you just pray scripture back to God. Like if you don't know how to pray, read the Bible and pray it back to him. You say, well, I don't understand everything that it means. That's okay, they're his words. Just start and practice that. And as you do that, look what happens. You're hearing his words, praying them back to him. And guess what? You start to learn that language. And so now when a voice comes in and sounds condemning and harsh and judgmental, you say, oh, that, that doesn't sound like this language. Or says, look, if you just grab this thing and follow like this thing that you want in the world and what it can provide for you, you say, mm, that doesn't sound like that language. But when you feel conviction that leads you to repentance and becoming who Christ has called you to be, you say, I hear that voice. I know that voice. I'm going to follow him in that. Look, which by the way, that's how we can help one another in speaking in ways that are of the Spirit. Speaking in ways that like, are displaying the fruit of the Spirit to one another. So do you want, if you know him, if he knows you, then listen to his voice. He will lead you. And he is good that he gives us that gift. And he's good in that when he calls to you, he leads you out. Go back to verse 3. It says, To him the gatekeeper opens the sheep, hear his voice, he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Right? So he leads them out, and then he goes before them. Here's the big idea about God's goodness in that. There is nowhere that God calls you to go that he has not already gone. There's no road that Jesus asks you to walk that he has not already walked and is not actively leading you on. He goes before you. 
But sometimes, yes, that gets abused. And people, again, much like listening to God, we can abuse that. And we can say, well, God goes before me. And so that, that's how I know that if I, I start this business that I want to start, it's going to be successful because God's already gone before me. He's cleared the path of all suffering and all challenges and all difficulties. That's not what he's saying. It's saying what it says it's saying. He goes before you. He leads you. That means every road you're walking, he's already walked it. What is it that you're dealing with right now that you think Jesus is a stranger to? Right? He knows all of those things. You think dealing with rejection or suffering? He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. What road are you walking? Maybe temptation. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Talk about this a lot in battling sin. Nobody understands sin better than Jesus because he has been tempted in every respect as we are, yet without sin. So if you are tempted, there is no better person to cling to than Jesus who has been there and knows the way out. And he will lead you. He will call you by name and lead you out of temptation. He knows what it means. Maybe you're faced with a road that's a hard road of obedience. He knows that too. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." What road are you walking that Jesus hasn't already walked? What kind of a God would do that? He doesn't need to do that. He didn't need to have done that to understand you. He's God, right? But he did, why? For us, that we would know. So whatever he's asking of, this is why when people say, well, like to follow Jesus means I've got to give this up or give that up. He's already done that. He's already walked that road. He does not ask anything of us that he has not already done himself and to a greater extent. There's no road that he hasn't taken, no suffering that he hasn't undergone, no obedience that he hasn't done, no emotion that he hasn't felt, no betrayal that he hasn't experienced, no role that he hasn't filled. He goes before you and he does not leave you. It says in verse 12, He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. 
He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Whatever road that is that he is calling you on and leading you on, he has gone before you, and he does not leave you when things get hard. Why would you entrust yourself to a voice or to someone who's going to abandon you at the first sign of trouble? Jesus is with you. He does not scatter when the wolves come. He is with you. So whatever road he's got you on, he has walked it and is walking it with you. That is how we know he is a good shepherd. But he doesn't just walk that road. He doesn't just not abandon us when the wolves come. He actually lays down his life in the ultimate picture of how good he is. In verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves, and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand, cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. So he doesn't just not scatter. He lays down his life for the sheep. So notice the contrast there. Again, the thief comes to kill and destroy. The thief comes to take the life of the sheep, but the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now, think about for a second. Do you think that they understand fully what he is talking about here? No. Now, they might have an inkling if they remember those words in Isaiah 53. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray and wandered after other voices. We have turned, every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Notice the jump in metaphor there. So Jesus is the shepherd, but he's also the gate. He's the shepherd, but he also becomes the lamb of God. Because while the other sheep scatter and go and don't listen to the shepherd and walk out and go in all kinds of other places that bring about destruction and pain and brokenness in the world, Jesus then becomes the sheep and takes on all of that sin on himself. And he lays down his life to deliver us from death. But the wild thing about it is what he says in verse 17. Look at what he describes about his laying down his life. For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. 
I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So yes, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. No one takes it from him. It's not circumstantial that he just happens to be thrust into a situation and says, ah, oh, we got to figure out something. I thought they were going to follow you. I thought they were going to go, but they didn't. And so now I got to figure something out. And so he just in a moment decides to, to lay down his life for the sheep. No, he says, I lay it down voluntarily. No one takes it from me. No one forces my hand. No one put me, backed me into a corner. I am the good shepherd. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. See, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus does pray, Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. Let this cup pass from me. Meaning what he was about to walk through in the crucifixion. But he says, not my will, but your will be done. So that's what we're talking about. Paul's talking about when he talks about how Jesus humbled himself and became obedient, even obedient to death, even death on the cross. He's calling back to the garden of Gethsemane. But in the garden, Jesus willfully surrenders himself. Look at Luke 22 up here on the screen. Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him. So this mob comes to arrest him. He says, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Listen, he's saying like you like, all day you've had me. You've had any opportunities. You could have, if you could have taken me outside of my will, this would have already happened. There are many times in the Gospels where they tried, and it says they, he was not delivered into their hand. He escaped from them. Like, there's all kinds of times where Jesus just disappears or, or walks away, and they don't do anything. And he says, the reason why you're able to come and get me right now is because I'm letting you come and get me. You don't need swords and clubs. I willfully lay down my life. And this points to his sovereignty. So whatever road you are on, Jesus has walked it, and he is walking it with you, but even more than that, he is sovereign over it. He didn't just find himself on some road with you and saying, gosh, I don't really know what's around this corner. Like, hey, I don't know. Yep, scary things are ahead. I'm not really sure what's up there, but don't worry. I'm not, I'm not going to leave you. He leads us on a path for his righteousness. He knows the path. He is sovereign over the path. It's one thing to know that you have a friend who will not leave you or forsake you. But it's far more to know that that friend is the sovereign Lord of the universe, by whom, through whom, and for whom all things are made. Like whatever road that you're on, like as you hear his voice, follow him. You know his voice. So follow him. He has been on that road before. He is leading you on that road now. And he is sovereign over it. The same God, who became flesh, took on our suffering, took on our temptation, took on our death, who loved you and gave himself up for you. He is totally and completely in control. Nothing happens apart from him. 
He's not forced into anything. He does everything according to his will. And everything he does according to his will is for your good. Paul writes in Romans 8, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. I know that when you read a verse like that, there's going to be, yeah, but what about this? You don't know the suffering that I have walked. Let me, let me just tell you right now, there are people in this room who have walked unimaginable roads of suffering. Unimaginable. There are people in the world right now who for the sake of Christ are walking unimaginable roads of suffering. And what they find is that what Christ is doing in them and what he is preparing them for is good. I just got a text this week from somebody who has walked one of those roads that I could not imagine. And they said that while the grief has remained and will always be there, the joy of what they are seeing God do in them and through them is something that they rejoice in and something they hope in for eternity, knowing that the grief is momentary but the joy that it produces is eternal. This is what Paul means when he says in 2 Corinthians, for we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are, un, that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So what is light and momentary as far as Paul is concerned? Being persecuted, beaten, and ultimately killed. That's what Paul is calling light and momentary. But it's light compared to the weight of glory an abundant life that is promised. It is momentary compared to the eternity of what God is offering. And those light and momentary afflictions, look what it says, are preparing us for the weight and for the eternal. Do I, do I understand how all that works? No, I don't. What I know are things like, as I saw my mom's body waste away day by day because of cancer, I saw also in her a joy and a contentment and an excitement of what was to come. And so when I read things like, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day, I picture my mom on that road and I say, like, well, that, that's what he means. So whatever thing is happening, whatever road that you have walked in that, know that it is preparing you. That's part of his goodness. His goodness is not just, I know bad things happen, but don't worry, eventually they're not going to happen anymore. He says, I know these are hard roads, but every single moment I am using 
and I will turn it into joy. Honestly, don't like, how do you have better news than that? To know every single pain, grief, suffering that you have ever faced will not just be eliminated, it will be resurrected and flipped upside down as joy for all eternity. If that's true, that's amazing. And if that's true, then he is good. Lastly, he brings unity in all of this. He says in verse 16, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. It's just such an incredible thing. He talks about one flock, one shepherd. He's talking about the unity of his people, of the church, under his lordship and under his kingship. The unity of the church. Now think about this. When he's talking about sheep that are not of his fold, he's talking about Gentiles and other nations. Right? So the, the people of God were always the, the Jews, the, the people of Israel. That, that was God's people. And there were other believers that were kind of grafted in, but it was primarily the people of Israel. But he's saying to them, look, I have other sheep that are not of this fold, and I'm going to go gather them in. And he doesn't say they're going to be a separate family, a separate lineage. He says it's one fold. They all come together under one shepherd. And we've said this a couple of times recently, but if, if you think that there's divide today, if you think that there's divide between political parties or races, it is nothing compared to the divide that was between Jews and Gentiles. Nothing. They couldn't even be in the same, they couldn't eat together. Like when, in the, in the New Testament, when they talk about, like, why does your, why does Jesus, why does your teacher eat with sinners? He's not just, they're not just talking about people who do bad things, just by nature, Gentiles. They're unclean. Like, how are you eating with them? It's fascinating. And so imagine these people who saw each other as unclean and hated one another now come to Christ and they are faced with becoming the church together in the face of persecution. And Jesus says they're all coming together in one fold under me. And what that means is just like the early church. In the early church, that gathering, whenever they assembled, wherever they assembled, they were by far, by far, the most diverse gathering of people anywhere. It wouldn't even have been close. Is that what we're known for? Or are we known more for division? Like it means that our church, this gathering right here, should be the most diverse gathering in this whole area. And I don't just mean by race or ethnicity. I'm talking socioeconomic, education level, age range, political philosophies all unified under Christ as our one shepherd. Like it's so critical that 
a huge chunk of the New Testament deals with that very issue. And we talk about it all the time because it's so important. Paul says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. We are under Christ. That is where our unity is. There's a great phrase by a pretty obscure German theologian whose best contribution was this phrase hundreds of years ago. He said, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. He said, in essentials, like the things that are critical to to who Jesus is and how we know him and, and how he is our shepherd and what does it look like, like just being devoted and following him, like in those essentials, unity. Like the claims of God through the scriptures that Jesus is fully God and fully man. He lived, he died, he rose again. He pays the price for our sin. He offers eternal, abundant life through the, the peace that he makes on our behalf through the cross. Like we're called to lay down our lives to follow him, to be crucified with him so that we can be raised to walk in newness of life. And it is through faith alone that we are saved, not by works. These these are the essentials, who Jesus is and how are we saved. And we should have unity around that. It was in non-essentials, liberty. Like one of, the great, one of the great examples of this that I just love so much for how deep the whole thing is, and I'm not going to go, into, I'll just give it to you to, to read. I'm just going to point out one thing. 1 Corinthians 8, you can read this. But one of the biggest issues as Jews and Gentiles are getting together is what can we eat? you imagine that being like the big, imagine like we got a potluck today after church. Imagine staying there in the potluck and just judging people based on like what they put on their plate. Well, maybe some of you do that. Like, well, it's got gluten in it. You know what gluten does to you, right? It's not the same wheat that it used to be. Like, sorry, I'm just parroting some of, some of the things I hear in my own house. From me, from me, I, from me. All the weird things that are said in my house are from me. Don't worry. Oh. But like, that's what was so big because what you ate was how they identified if you were serious about God's word. If you were really serious about God's word, then you would only eat eat these things. You wouldn't eat the meat. Or if you were serious about God's word, you would eat the meat. And so they were judging each other constantly, and it was causing division. And they get Paul to weigh in on this important topic. Can you imagine right now what question, if you got to ask Paul a question, if he's going to waltz in here, and you have this super apostle, what thing would you want to know to clarify? What craziness is going on in the church right now or debate going on in the church you'd say hey Paul could you just weigh in on this for us what would you ask him well they would ask him about meat and this is what he says concerning food offered to idols because that was the issue meat sacrificed to other gods like is it unclean because it was sacrificed to other gods concerning food offered to idols we know that all of us possess knowledge this knowledge puffs up but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. I know this is interesting. The translation 
puts the quotes around knowledge because that's what the figure of speech would have been. Like, hey, this knowledge that you, that you claim to have, if you imagine that you actually have knowledge about this thing and that's why you're so assertive about this, you actually don't know what you think you know. And what does he point to? That that knowledge about that issue is secondary to loving one another. And he says, if you don't get that, then you're not as smart as you think you are. Like, this is critical. There was no bigger issue in this moment. And Paul says, it's secondary to how you love one another. You can read the rest of this on your own, but watch for the unity under Christ and how knowledge is considered secondary. And so it's things like that, passages like that, that make me think over the last couple of years that do we really think that Paul, when he responded in that way, that he would have had a really strong opinion about masks? No. Or on voting booths? Or on vaccines? He's not saying there's no understanding and no knowledge. He's saying it's secondary to the unity under King Jesus. We have no king but Jesus, no life but his, no hope but the resurrection. One flock, one shepherd, the good shepherd. And so, side note, pastors are called shepherds, right? And so, so I'm one of the shepherds, but I'm an under-shepherd to Christ as the shepherd. And so my job and the job of all of our elders is a position of service under Christ, not a position of authority on earth. And so our job is simple, work for the unity of the church under King Jesus. Easy enough, right? Check, done. So we're going to preach Jesus and his word and preach unity under Christ. In the the essentials, we want to have unity. In the non-essentials, we want to have liberty and let people pursue what they believe God is calling them to do. And in all things, charity loving one another. So the question is simply then, do you believe? Look, if you have your Bible in in front of you, verse 19, there was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Lots of division. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Great question. If you think those things about him, you should not listen to him. Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? And the question that is presented at the end of this passage is the question that's before us. Over the years, I've had many people ask me, like, what's the proof? Like, if you just could give some proof that Jesus is who he says he is, I would believe him and follow him. And all I can do is respond with things like Jesus. It says, like, it's already given you all that. An adulterous generation seeks signs, but no sign will be given but the sign of Jonah. He just point to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Like the question is, hear him, listen to his voice. What do you hear? If you see, hear the ramblings of a madman or a lunatic, well then you're not of his fold. And so yeah, I get it why it would make no sense, but if you hear the shepherd calling you by name and leading you out and follow him, He is 
the good shepherd. He is sovereign. He is good. Whatever makes you question that, whatever's happened in your life that makes you question that, consider this, that he knows your name. He goes before you. He lays down his life for you. And he makes you his people and his family forever. If you hear him and follow him, go in and out and find salvation and pasture. He is a good shepherd. Let's pray. Father, you are good. And Lord Jesus, like as you came and walked, like I don't know how it is our unbelieving hearts that just continue to want to throw accusations, but how do we know that you are good? You are good. There's no road that you lead us down that you haven't already walked. There's no price that you are unwilling to pay that we would be saved and find pasture. And we know that because of the cross. And we know that you are sovereign because of the empty grave. And we know that you are good. That you know us. That you call us. That you let us hear your voice. That you lead us. That you lay down your life for us. That we might have peace with God and with one another and find life abundant. Help us to hear and to follow and to experience the incredible abundant life that you offer through the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.